Thank you, John. Well, good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. If I get this on, we'll be good. First Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, we've been doing kind of a, a high-level overview, if you will, of the New Testament. Last year, spent the entire year doing kind of an overview of the Old Testament. Um, again, you can't cover it all in a year, obviously. And so, this year we started in a gospel. Um, the end of last year, we had a group on Sunday nights go all the way through the book of Acts together, kind of a large group out on the patio most of the time. It was a lot of fun. We had to kind of dive into what God is calling the church to be. Um, again, we began with the gospel. We moved into some early letters of Paul's as Paul seeks to establish the gospel within the communities of faith that he had worked with, those that he had begun and those that he had relationship with. Uh, one of those churches uh, was the church in Ephesus. And that's a church that is really close to the heart of Paul the Apostle. He went out there, he started the church, he legitimately started a riot in the city of Ephesus around the gospel. That's fun. I feel like I will have achieved ministry greatness when we start a riot in a city. That'd be fun, right? So as Paul is trying to establish the gospel within those communities... He writes a little later in his middle letters, and then a little later to his later letters, that's what we're looking at right now, and really he's trying to establish those communities a little better. So those communities being the local church. So he is really leaning into what it means to be a local church. He's talked about it as he was establishing the gospel. The gospel calls us to be a part of a community. Yes, we come to faith. There is a... Uh, there is a individual, really, relationship that must be there as a Christian. But we're not called to live it out as individuals. We're called to live it out within communities called the church, a local church, local body. And so Paul has sent his son in the faith, Timothy, this, this young man that, that he had spent his life pouring into, sends him out to Ephesus to help kind of re-put together, if you will, reorder the church in Ephesus that Paul cares so deeply about. Last week, we began with kind of establishing that sound doctrine that Paul says, listen, other teachers have crept in and they've been telling you other things, but he wants to make sure that their, their doctrine, their understanding of the gospel and the life that flows out of it is embedded in them. Today, he's going to move to establishing kind of some order in the church service. So he's going to talk about what we do here on Sunday mornings. Now, this is not church. This is our worship service. We are the church, right? When we gather, it matters what we do. There are things we do, there are things we don't do. But when we gather, it matters what we do. God gives us some fairly prescriptive things that we should do and not do. There's obviously a lot of latitude inside of that. What songs we choose or what, you know, whatever. Uh, how we teach, we teach topical something or whatever. I, we teach expositorily through books of the Bible. And so there's, there's definitely some latitude in there, but there are some things that are very clear that he calls us to. So today he's going to look at the order of worship or the, the orderliness within the worship gathering. Just, as a, just kind of a, a side note, uh, I know Alex is out, looks like he broke a string. He's out changing strings on the guitar right now. But last two weeks, just so you know, like our band has been pretty thin. And that's because we asked... Uh, one of our other leaders to go help a church out for two weeks. And so Encounter was without a worship leader for a couple weeks, and so we sent Joe and Chanel, and, and many of you know them. It thins out our band. It 
Um, it happened on a Thursday morning, so rehearsal for Alex is Thursday night, and so you can imagine how that went down. Um, but he rallied, and so just as, while well, I took some time off over the summer, other churches that we're in relationship with connect with us, so we also connect with them and, and serve them. Just so you know, just, it's nice to know that we're giving back to them. All right, I'm going to put a main idea up on the screen today, and it's a little different of a main idea, but specific needs and universal truths. Paul's letter to Timothy cites specific issues in the Ephesian church's worship and corrects them with gospel truths that apply to the church throughout history. Ashley, can we just leave that up there for a minute? So here's what I want you to hear. Last week, we talked about sound doctrine, and as we got near the end of the passage, there was a list of sins, right? He deals with things that they're doing that don't line up with the gospel. One of the things I said about that last week is he is using specific examples. He's not, he's not trying to write a comprehensive list of what's going on, and he's not even trying to identify the worst things. He's identifying common things that are going on in this particular church and how to deal with them in the gospel. When we look at order of worship today, when we look at our gatherings today, he's not trying to say these are the worst things ever, and he's, not trying, to, he's trying to say like these are some examples of what's going on in your life right now. If he were to write to us, there would be different examples. Does that make sense? So he deals with the examples of what's going on there, but I want you to say those are the specifics. But when he does so, he has to deal with them in ways that are universally true. If it's not true for the church in Cerritos today, then it can't be true for the church in Ephesus then. Does that make sense? Like truth has got to apply across the board. Right now there's different application and maybe they're struggling with something we're not struggling with. That's okay too. But if it's true, it's true. The next book we'll be doing is we'll, working, we'll be working through Revelation through, for the rest of the year when we finish this one. Same idea. If it's true for us, it has to be true on the other side of the planet too, right? Can't just be this thing that we think fits us but doesn't fit everybody. Universally, it has to be true. So specific needs and universal truths. Thanks, Ashley. So 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1. Paul tells Timothy, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. All right, so again, not just you should pray. He's saying you, the church, when you gather, should pray. That'll get clearer in the middle of the passage. He's talking about when you gather, there are some things you should do. Supplication is praying for the easy cheater way is like supply, praying for needs, right? So supplications, in other words, prayer for things that people need. We need, you need. Prayer is kind of the most generic version of this kind of this, this relationship, this communication with God, right? That you would both speak to God, but also listen to God, right? When we pray, we should not just be doing all the talking. It should be a dialogue, not a monologue. You with me? So you should ask for, you should also listen, right? When you're asking for God, which I've got these two things, I got to choose, what do I do? And then you should probably take some time and listen for an answer, right? That answer might come audibly. That happens. I'd like to hear about it. Uh, hadn't happened to me. Would probably scare me. Often that will come a lot more quietly. Uh, in your heart, you just know where God is leading you, sometimes through Scripture, sometimes through the church, however that works out. But praying about it and giving space 
to hear back, right? Intercessions is the next thing, and, and intercessory prayer, intercession is using that word to how to intercede on someone's behalf, right? How to kind of stand in the gap. When someone is here and God is here, kind of standing in the gap, praying for them, right? And when I read this word, there's just this, there's a bit of intensity to the word. And there's also a, a bit of like, you can't just do that in a 30-second prayer, right? When we hear like to intercede on someone's behalf, it sounds like it's going to be some work. It's going to take some effort. And that you would be standing, and I just stand in the gap for them. That you would put yourself in a place of praying for someone else and seeking God on their behalf for whatever it might be. Thanksgivings. It's being grateful to God for what God has already done. Now, these aren't for the only ways to pray. There are other things. For sure, we should worship in our prayer. Worship and thanksgiving are very different, right? Worship is who God is, giving God, pra- giving God praise or glory for who he is inherently. Thanksgiving is being grateful to God for what he has done. I always tell people, listen, if I told my wife, I love you because you make dinner, probably wouldn't go well. It might go well in the first time, right? Like, good, weird, but good, all right. But if that's all I ever said, I just love her because of what she does for me, that would probably wear out pretty quick, right? That's thanksgiving. That's not worship. So this isn't, uh, again, this isn't a comprehensive list. It's not meant to be. It's a list. It's some things. It's some things to challenge them to do. Hey, when you pray, broaden your prayer life out. When you gather together as the church, he says, I want you to be praying. Here's some ways you can do that. You can pray for God to supply for needs. You can pray and list. You give space for God to speak. You can intercede on other people's behalf, and you can pray prayers of thanksgiving, right? When you gather, your time should be marked with prayer. So let's read that again. Verse 1. First of all, then, I urge this supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When you read the word all... One of the first things I learned early, early on seminary, almost 20 years ago, I had a guy tell me, all means all, and that's all it means. Okay? Clearly it sticks with you, right? Because it has plagued me to this day. Problem is, you're not right. Almost always, all has a context to it. Right? He was telling us that all always means all people, past, present, and future. Now, is Paul asking us to pray for the dead? No. Is he really asking him to pray for people on the other side of the planet that they don't know about? No. He's saying, listen, you need to open up your prayers and broaden your prayers to the community that you're in. Now, he's not limiting it to the city of Ephesus, but more about, hey, listen, you're, not, you're praying more probably internally than you are externally. Does that make sense? And you should pray for all people. That's what he means, right? So he opens this up, and then he adds praying for kings and for people in power, leadership, like one of our elders John did today, right? That kind of idea that we should be praying for the people that are in leadership over and around us. Church leadership, city leadership. Actually reached out to the mayor. I haven't heard back from him. I was asking, hey, how can we be praying for this weekend? I was hoping to have something specific. Nobody's answering my call at the governor's office, but you know, hey, whatever. So um, you don't have to agree with the people in office, to pray for them. 
right? This is the church in Ephesus that lives in a culture that is completely antithetical to Christianity. Again, this is the church in the city where Paul, by preaching the gospel, legitimately started a riot. Acts 19, you can read about it. For three hours, they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. He kicks off a riot because so many people are coming to faith that people who make idols of Artemis are going out of business. That's awesome. I want us to be such a church that people that profit off of things that don't honor God lose business. That's rad, right? Goals. Everybody's got to have goals. Okay. Riot. People going out of business. My goals are weird. But, all right. But pray for them. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to like them. You probably voted against them at some point, right? Something. But you are called to pray for them. Something we could have learned over the last three years this would have been it, right? Between this president and the last president, lots of complaining going on, not a lot of prayer going on. So what are we to do when a culture or nation is opposed to our faith? Well, Paul's answer is begin by praying for them. He doesn't even say pray that they'll change their policies that you don't like. He says pray for them. Pray for people in positions of authority. Other passages in scripture call us to submit to authority. Right? As long as it's not violating the law of God, submit to authority. In other places, he, he talks about that God puts authority in position. That there is no one in, in, in authority that God didn't put in authority. And it's all written under a Roman Caesar who persecuted Christianity for 300 years. The first 300 years of Christianity. So it's not pray for them that they'll be good to you. It's not pray for them if they agree with you. It's not pray that they'll change their policies that I don't like. It's pray for them. Verse 3, this is good, he says. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the same thing that all there didn't just get generic and watered down. That same all. Like the people you're praying for, he wants them to come to faith. Well, it would have been a lot better on the church and the first 300 years of the church, if one of those Caesars had just come to faith, right? Would have been a different setting. When he says pray for all people, you can't possibly pray for all people. It's got some context to it. Like, hey, you guys are being really internally focused. Let's start praying for the world you live in. And again, I, I use the word world, but our world is only so big. Yeah, I get it. Internet, I get it. I mean, like I get we live in a global society, but we really don't. We can't possibly know the people on the other side of the planet and how to pray for them. It doesn't mean God puts on your heart to pray for the people in Nairobi, then do it. But really, our world is as big as it is, and those people that are in it should be being prayed for. Again, our governor lives quite a distance away, but he's our governor. Pray for our governor, pray for our mayor, pray for whatever. We're saying, listen, pray for the people around you, pray for the leaders around you. My heart is, or God's heart is, that they would come to faith, right? So we'll put this up on the screen, corporate prayer. We, personally, generations, we give time in our worship service for prayer for ourselves and for others. God calls his gathered worshipers to be a people of prayer. He calls us when we get together to pray, right? And that, that we would gather, and, and sometimes it's awkward, and, and it's especially awkward if you don't have a very consistent prayer life, if you're not used to doing that. I think Alex has handled that really well. Hey, you can pray out loud right now. You can pray silently right now. You can do this. 
but we should be a people who pray together. That there's something powerful about when we come together and God calls us to be a people in prayer together. In Isaiah 56, 7, it says this, And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Right? Jesus repeats this as he drives the people out of the temple area that are extorting the people and abusing the people. He says, listen, my house will be called a house of prayer. Not just a house of Bible, not just a house of singing songs, but a house of prayer. Yvette earlier said, this is God's house. We want to take care of God's house, right? It's not ours. It's God's. You're not ours. You're God's. You are Christ's church here at Generations. And then we want to pray for people. And then we want, to, we want to gather with people. And that we should be called a people of prayer. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at a proper time. So this is a, a monotheistic creed, a one God creed, right? Now there's one God eternally coexistent in three persons, the Trinity, right? So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God eternally in three persons. A bit of a mystery, a conversation for a different day. But what he does is he puts forward a monotheistic creed in a polytheistic culture. In other words, he puts forward there's one God, right, in a culture where they worship many gods. He's kind of saying some things that are counter to the culture that they live in. So pray for the leaders that worship multiple gods, but remember we worship the one true God and the one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's, so he's giving a kind of a creedal statement, if you will. This kind of declaration of who they are and, and what they believe in and what is true about God. And he's, he's giving this to them, and it's very contrary to the culture that they live in. So all through this, you're going to see Paul kind of weave these things. You're going to be praying for the world that you live in, praying for the people that you are around, people, for the people that are in authority that you may not agree with. We're hoping really that God will, will save them, will, will change them, make them followers of Jesus. But in the meantime, we're going to pray for them, and yet we're going to be loving and caring and prayerful. We're also going to be distinct because what we believe is not the same as what they believe. You can believe something different than the people around you and still, and, and not be at odds with, right? Today, especially politically, if we disagree, it's like you're evil because you don't agree with me. And that's just legitimately just a difference of opinion in many cases. This is an entirely different cultural setting whole different worship system, whole different faith structure. And he's saying, but listen, you can pray for them, you can love them, you can care for them, that God desires to see them come to faith, but you can also be distinct and different about what you believe. And he talks about Jesus, our mediator, that there is one mediator between man and God, right? That, that God created us and loves us, designed us, made us, loves us, but we have all turned from God and gone our own way. And Paul calls Christ that mediator. And literally, when we see Jesus on the cross, is this the, the best image for me of God and humanity separated by this distance and Jesus legitimately between heaven and earth, between God and human hanging there. Between God and humanity hanging there. 
that Jesus comes and lives and dies and gives his life to cover our sin, but not just to forgive us, but to reconcile us, to be that mediator between God and humanity, between a holy God and a sinful humanity is Christ our mediator. He says he's the one that goes in between us. So he used interceding earlier that we should go between people and God and, and pray for them and pray on their behalf. And then he reminds us that's exactly what Jesus did, that he stands in between God and humanity. The book of Hebrews even says that today, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for the church, for us. All Paul's doing is calling us to be more like Jesus. Verse 7, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The apostle here, or apostle here being used, gives him that authority. And, and what it is, an apostle, apart from Christianity in this culture, anyhow, the word apostle no matter who was saying it, is someone who was sent from someone. That's what the word really means. But sent with a message and the authority of the, the sender, if you will, right? So if a king is going to send an apostle to someone to tell them something, that's the messenger goes with the authority of the one who sent him. So Paul is saying in the same way, I am one who doesn't, not my own authority, but God's authority. God has sent me with this message. I am one sent from God, Sent from Jesus with a message, this current message being to the church in Ephesus. But he reminds him, as he writes to Timothy, he says, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Notice that Paul keeps us focused on those who are far from God. Paul was a religious zealot. He was a, a highly trained Jewish leader. And then when he came to faith, God, ironically, sends him to non-Jewish people, right? It was, it was good in God's plan to know that, listen, you're going to need all of this when you get, even when you get to this group of people so you can teach them what God has been saying all along. And when others come in and try and add things to it, you'll be able to shut that down and keep them focused on the gospel. And so God actually sends one of the most highly trained Jewish leaders of the day outside the Jewish community, but uses him in such a way to proclaim Christ to the far reaches of the earth in their day, from the far distance away to others that would hear the gospel and come to faith. And Ephesus, again, is a primarily non-Jewish, very non-Christian, very pagan or polytheistic culture. And that's where Paul spent, of all the places where he went and proclaimed the gospel and spent time, he spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. Spent three years in Ephesus, really establishing this church, and then sent Timothy back later and writes letters to Timothy to encourage him. Verse 8, so remember, we're working through this kind of orderly view of worship. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me just ask you, does Paul think women should pray? Are we confused by that at all? Okay, good. So why then would he single out men and say, well, I think that I want all men to pray? Maybe because that's the weak suit for men, at least here, right? We all agree, of course he wants women to pray. 
The absence in this church is men prayer, men praying, being men of prayer. So he calls it out. Again, we don't have to miss that. We don't have to miss that Paul loves the women in the church, that Paul desires them to pray, that prayers for all people, and that you, all people, all Christians should be praying, and that people should be praying for all people around them, all the people that, that God brings to mind that they can pray for. But the obvious deficit in the church in Ephesus is men standing up and being men of prayer. Notice what he says, I, I desire that in every place that men should pray. Every place is true. Again, this is a specific issue with a universal truth, right? He's applying the same thing here that he would apply anywhere else, but it's an issue here. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What might likely be going on in Ephesus? Men lacking prayer, full of anger and quarreling. So he calls it out. Like, dudes, you've got to step up, right? What you're doing is not good. I desire that men everywhere should be lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, that they should pray. So I want to start at that again. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So why aims this comment now at the women? Ah, you guys were so bold when it was about dudes. All right. When the guys were in the crosshairs, you were much more vocal, ladies. Just saying. Yeah. The culture here was such that women, especially women coming out of prostitution from worship of Artemis, were coming to faith and flooding into the church, but they weren't maturing in that area. They were coming in, but they were still looking like they were from over here. And so he uses a very cultural passage, braided hair, gold, that kind of things had to do with Artemis. It had to do, it's like, if we said someone looks like a prostitute today, we have one idea in mind. Someone who looked like a prostitute in this culture looked different than what we have in mind. But he's speaking to the same thing. Does that make sense? So we have this influx of women who had been worshipers of Artemis kind of flooding into the Ephesian church. And at the same time, and they're, and they're really they're coming to faith, but they're really not changing how they look or approach other people. And then over here, we've got men who are not very prayerful and who obviously have some anger issues and some quarreling issues. So he's taking a shot at two things he sees going wrong in the church, right? And again, that doesn't isolate anyone. Of course, everybody should be prayerful. And of course, both men and women should be maturing in their faith and growing out of who they were to, into who Christ is making them to be. But he calls out what he is seeing in, and again, remember, this is about orderliness in the public worship service. This is what's happening inside the gathering for worship. And so he calls it out. So growing in godliness, we'll put this on the screen. Paul calls the Ephesian church to correct men who are not maturing and leading spiritually and women who are not maturing and growing in godliness. He calls them out in the specific areas they're struggling in, but he calls them out and corrects them with truths that are always true. If it's true for Ephesus, it has to be true for Colossae too. It has to be true over here in Corinth over here in Rome. 
So it's a consistent message that's true in all those churches, but when he calls out one group of people, oftentimes he will isolate certain things that are going on in this community that may not be going on in Rome or Thessalonica. Make sense? The truths are always complete. So remember, Paul's talking about the gathered worship space here. Let's read through some of these verses, then we'll break it down. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So first, there's some confusing pieces of this. I read them all together once. You can kind of hear the passage as it sits together. What Paul is going to do, and he's using kind of a rhetorical device where you identify one thing, the whole, by, by referencing a part. We'll talk about that in a second. But what he's going to do is he's going to take us all the way back to the world before sin. He's going to take us back to creation, back to Adam and Eve before they had disobeyed God, to how God has created us, humanity, to be. He's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about the fall when sin enters into human history. And he's going to talk about the curse that that brought. So he's going to take these three things, and of course, all of that lends itself again to Jesus himself. So he's referencing the entire, think, first three chapters of Genesis, all by spotting those three, four pieces. So let's look at that. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. All right. So you can see he's been identifying specific issues in Ephesus all along, right? Men are lacking prayer. They're full of anger and quarrels, but they're lacking prayer. Women who are coming to faith out of worship of Artemis are coming and they're kind of retaining that look and that approach that they had when they were temple prostitutes in Ephesus, right? And so he's seeing these things come into the church and then he identifies another. There's clearly some lack of order in their worship gathering. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes and he says this. I'm just going to read it again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That line there, I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. He is calling them to kind of remember back to creation how God ordered the family, and by that, how Jesus has ordered the church. I'm going to give you kind of a definition, complementarianism. God has created both sexes equally but different. The distinctions are in roles, not value. God compares this view of equal but different to himself in the Trinity. Now, Remember that. God compares this equal but different to God, the Trinity. Here's the verse, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. All right. Is Jesus any less God than God the Father? Are we pretty clear on that? Then by that... If Jesus is equal to God, but defers leadership to God the Father, then are men and women any difference in equality or value? Role change. That's it. That God created Adam and delegated the task of leading his family to him. Okay? 
that she will defer leadership to Adam, even, and this is important, before sin, before sin enters into human history, God orders the family. We talk about being a complementarian church. That means there are only two things that we say God has called men to that he's not called women to. One would be elders in the church. We use elder and pastor typically very synonymously, right? To being elders in the church and to be husbands in the home. That's it. That God has called men to lead in their homes and in the church. It's very hard to lead in your home if your wife is the leader of the church. Fair? Okay. So he calls men and he limits this role, in this case, speaking to this church, but it has to be true everywhere. If it's true here, it has to be true universally, right? He can't just have some random truth for Ephesus. And so he says, I don't allow women to teach or have a position of authority over men. Because how would you then play that out in your home? That's it. So he limits this role, the preaching role on Sundays, functionally for them, right? To elders and pastors, or to men who have authority over their church, the elders and pastors of their church. And equally is calling men out, not in this particular passage, but equally, like we saw in the letter to the Ephesians, calling men to lead in their homes. That's it. Not inequity, not inequality, not second-class citizens, because if, Christ, if God is the head of Christ, and we know that God and Jesus are co-equal, co-eternal God, but that Jesus willingly defers leadership to the Father, like how many times in the Gospels does Jesus say, I do nothing of my own accord or nothing by my own will, but only what the Father in heaven sent me to do? He just defers leadership. He says we're equal, but I'm following God's lead on this. So again, 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand, Paul writes to the other church in Corinth about the same kind of topic. The head of every man is Christ, okay? I'm to follow Jesus, got it. The head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You can defer leadership between two equals. It's like being on staff here. We have multiple people on staff here, and sometimes it is just my job to lead. Sometimes you're like, all right, Alex, good idea, let's do that right? But at some point, someone's at the top of the org chart. All equal, deferred leadership. Verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, before we get all like, women are more easily deceived, that's not what he's saying. Let's just cut that off of the past so we don't have to do marriage counseling tomorrow. All right. <laughs> Whose sin are we all held accountable for? Adams or Eves? Adams. Why? Because he was the head, right? Because he had headship over his household. Headship means kind of like, is more like source of life than it is authority. It has both connotations to it, but that he should be that source of life, like the head of Christ, or the head of every man is Christ. Like that Jesus should be our supply, our life. He should give us all that we need for everything else, right? And that we should do that for our families, for our wives, for our children. That as husbands, as fathers, we should be that. We should be that, that source of life, spiritual life, into our families. That's what God calls men to be. And that in that, he says, listen, it was, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We go to the negative side of it and say, look, it's pointing out this thing about women. I'm going to say, look what happened. Adam knew what he was doing and still sinned. Who is more culpable? Adam. 
So this here isn't going to the negative. It's highlighting, hey, listen, Adam knew what he was doing, and he did it anyways. Because you guys know the story. Satan is tempting Eve, right? And, and he's tempting her with something that God has said, don't, this is bad for you. And he's saying, no, it's good for you. God is trying to withhold good. And then her husband is standing right next to her doing nothing like so many men in the church today. Men who aren't prayerful. Men who are much better at being angry and argumentative than they are at prayer. And he isolates this and says, listen, Adam knew what he was doing and did it anyways. The woman was deceived into doing it. I don't see this as an anti-woman statement, but more hammering Adam. Verse 15, this one is a challenge to understand if you don't have it in context. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. The they is all of them, just for the record. So the first half, she will be saved through childbearing. So the context is creation, fall, curse, and redemption, right? So creation, how God made them. We've been talking about God made Adam first and how that has implication even in the church today. What was the man created to be before sin? If it was different before sin, then we, if it was different before sin than it was after sin, then what's the problem? Well, sin, right? But how God created it to be is how we want to be. Make sense? We want to get back to, through Christ, through redemption, through the gospel, we want to return to what God had for us to begin with. We want to remove the negative effects of sin. And when I say we, this has nothing to do with we, right? This is all about what Jesus has done, what the Holy Spirit does in us. But what we desire, I hope, is that we can return to a sense of how God created us to be even while living in this broken and jacked up world that we broke, right? And so he goes back to the creation account and says, okay, this is how I made it. That This does not make you unequal. It's just delegated leadership, right? And then fall, he did it on purpose. She was deceived, but here we are. And sin and curse. Now, it's less clear if you don't understand the curse to women. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. So Genesis 3, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Do you see the struggle they're dealing with in Ephesus right now? There is this battle between who's going to lead like, who's going to happen? And the women in the church have stood up and started to lead, and the men have abdicated their role. They're in the backgrounds. They're not praying. They're not leading. Women are teaching in this church, and Paul's like, that's not how God created us to be. And so he goes and takes them all the way back to creation before sin, when God established Adam to lead his family. And then he looks at the fall, how sin entered in and what it broke. And he looks at the curse as well. But the hope comes just before this verse. So we'll put it up, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, now let's just pause. The offspring of the serpent is going to be evil, like historic evil, whether that be demonic evil or evil in general, is going to be at odds with the offspring of women, in other words, humanity, right? That humanity, all the days of our life, humanity will battle with evil, with sin, with evil in the world. And we often miss 
kind of lose sight of the fact that we're actually in a spiritual battle, right? That there is actual evil that would stop the church, not stop the nation, not stop the city, not stop a politician, stop the church. But Jesus has promised that his church will prevail. So there goes the battle, right? So the offspring, so all of evil, all of humanity will contend all of their lives. But then it slows down and it focuses as he, who's he? He will bruise your head. God is proclaiming this over Satan in the garden, right as sin enters into human history. He, Jesus, will crush your head even though you will bruise his heel. He says there will be a momentary look like there's victory. And that's when Jesus dies. But when Jesus resurrects from the grave, he has victory over Satan's sin and death. Right? He takes us all the way back to the curse, but part of the curse to women, one, is pain and childbearing. Two, is contention with the husband. The struggle we have Every conversation we have about inequity, from misogyny to feminism, pick your team, from patriarchy to this, whatever, the whole thing is a part of the curse of sin. That when sin entered the world, it jacked up the relations vertically and horizontally. That our relationship with God is severed, but our relationship with the other person that we should be the most close to, our spouse, is also damaged. And the contention will be for who leads this crazy thing we call marriage and family. And who leads this thing we call church. And so we are unashamedly complementarian, meaning we believe in equal but different. Right? And that that limits itself to who are the elders in the church and what the call is on husbands in the home. That it is limited to those two things. And inside of that, the one thing that is given to elders that isn't given anywhere else is the role of preaching on Sundays. That's it. Listen, if I could have excluded Yvette from doing announcements today and saying all the stuff she just said on any biblical grounds, I'd have done it, right? <laughs> it's true. She actually hates being on stage. So, um, bad example, maybe. We limit ourselves to what God is calling us to. But we're also unashamed of that, as God has called it to be this way. And it's not demeaning to anybody. Trust me, there are lots of women who do things way better than I do. But God has called us to lead. That men, God has called you to lead in your home and in your church. And women, you're called to delegate that authority to him, not that he is better. You may be born gifted. You might be smarter. You probably take more notes and, and, and probably remember more things, for sure. But we can give you football statistics. Just going to leave it alone. He says, listen, if the man and the woman can just continue through the curse, if they can continue to focus themselves on Jesus living in this fallen and broken, jacked up world that we are equally guilty for breaking, if they will just persevere, verse 15, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, right? Lean in, church. Lean into what God has called us to, right? This is one of those passages that if you don't know he's going all the way back to creation, fall, and curse, it's hard to understand it. But he makes very clear in the middle, we have one mediator between God and man, and it's our Savior, Jesus. There is nothing you can do or I can do that contribute to our own salvation. 
And this relationship between men and women, we break it more often than we do it well. The battle for power says she will desire to rule over, or she will contend with you, and you will rule over this battle. But in Christ, there is a way to understand we are equal but different. In the gospel, we seek to have all that God created us be restored to us in our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. And so when, when we gather in worship, we look back to Paul and we remember, that's right, we need to be men of prayer. We need to be a church of prayer. It's not leaving anybody out. The struggle is oftentimes our men are not very prayerful. In fact, oftentimes our struggle is our men are absent. We have a unique church. Typically, you walk into a church on a Sunday, and it's about 60, 40 men to women, uh, women to men. Our church is pretty close to 50, 50. That's because we aim at men, that we call out men, that we want men to be what God has created them to be, and that we believe that if God can change the man, he can impact the entire family. And so without hesitation, we will always be harder on the men. So ladies, good news. We will always see this as a call for men to rise up and lead better. And that's what Paul does. He calls these men out to be men of the gospel. And then he, and then he calls out the women who aren't living up to it either. But he calls us to lead as Christ has led, as Christ is leading. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that we have your word to clarify, to help, to guide, to lead. Because left to our own devices, we just don't understand. We just don't do well. Sometimes our best ideas are just so far from you. And so we thank you that we have this anchor that is your word. We pray that our men would be men of prayer. We pray that our women would know that their value and their worth is far more than what they look like, or how they dress, or lack dress that we would understand you created us, and you designed us, and that we function best when we live as you called us to. So help us to live that way. Help us in the Gospels surrender our lives to you. Jesus, thank you for all that you have done for us. It's in your name that we pray.